0: From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California's investment office. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, founder and editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, you guys. Uh, A lot has happened since we last got together. not just on David's face with this new goatee. Uh, David, can you tell us about uh, what was the inspiration for this new goatee?
1: It's a little bit of a denial about the end of summer. It's a sort of a camping road trip sort of goatee that I haven't been willing to shave off yet, but it's coming off soon. I tell you, it's too gray. (laughs)
0: Uh, So it's been a while since the three of us have spoken together for the podcast. On today's show, we're going to talk about impact investing and climate resilience. We've already seen the devastation that Hurricanes Harvey and Irma caused across Texas, the Gulf Coast and Florida to say nothing about the heat waves and wildfires in other parts of the U.S. and the intense monsoons in Bangladesh and drought and mudslides throughout Africa. And that's just in the past couple months. Climate change is increasing the size, frequency, and cost of these natural disasters. Now, obviously, there are a range of policy solutions that will need to be played out in our political systems. But what's the role for impact investors in helping to build an economy that fosters more climate resiliency? So, David, do you want to take a crack at this? What does climate resiliency look like?
1: Well, I mean, I've been struck by how the climate change angle of the recent Disasters has kind of been postponed, I think, till you know, till the humanitarian and other um, emergency uh, aspects have been taken care of. So, but I think it's now no longer bad taste to talk about, you know, climate change. It's not politicizing a, a tragedy kind of thing anymore to say, hey, there are some real changes that have to get made, and that in fact there are some real solutions that we're becoming aware of. the The, the main thing, of course, is that the risks of not doing anything are um, becoming much more clear. And those risks then, and mitigating those risks, present all sorts of opportunities for financing um, uh, solutions. So um, there's a whole range of things we can talk about, you know, different kinds of catastrophe bonds and other things that um, are getting a lot more interest now that can uh, defray the cost, transfer the risks, and build some needed infrastructure and, and resilience for coastal communities and, and others that are, are uh, suffering these consequences.
0: So Imogen, do you think uh, that impact investors need to be more involved in the policy conversations around climate resiliency?
2: I do very much, actually. I think this idea that, you know, we have the policy conversation going on on one side and the impact conversation going on elsewhere is a very bad idea. I think it's a, you know, I think you really run the danger that, you know, sort of the outgoing president of the Heron Foundation, Clara Miller, has talked about sort of how you don't have you know, there isn't a good economy and a bad economy like impact investing or not profits aren't the guys shouldn't be the guys coming in literally doing like the cleanup work it's all part of the same system and i think there's a real danger here that impact capital is seen as the capital that steps into the void and tries to make things better when what we really need to do is steer the entire capital market system and the entire political system into a more resilient approach. So for example, I think that the impact community at this moment in time in particular would be much better served by talking about the political aspects of this than going to Washington and trying to like broaden the markets for impact investing. Like, you know, it, it it's crazy to me. We should be politicizing this issue. What else are we gonna talk about this? And it's gonna become more and more expensive. This is happening every single year. And it's crazy to me that we're not talking about this and that you know po- politicians are talking about giving billions of dollars and no one is connecting that with a proper discourse around climate change and i think the impact community is perfectly situated to do that kind of work
0: now, why would the impact community um, uh, be well positioned to have a voice in the political process
2: because it straddles the it, it straddles the worlds of not-for-profits finance high net worth and public policy and therefore it has long been very well versed on looking for political avenues so it already has that skill set i mean if you think about what what puts you know the, the g20 efforts the stuff that sir ronald cohen has done to really inject impact investing into a political discourse which was very effective you know under the obama administration if you could now take that and steer it into other aspects of policy i think there's you know there's a lot of work that could be done there
1: there is a policy direction or a policy channel that is opening up which is disaster resilience is actually a key part of the sustainable development goals because these disasters are no longer sort of one off you know surprises there's a kind of drumbeat every year um, and they're not all climate-related. I don't, I don't know if we've linked earthquakes to climate change yet, but the effect of them is to um, really uh, impede any kind of sustainable development. I mean, communities get wiped out. They, they 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 can't move forward because they're busy rebuilding. And so, putting these things on an, a policy agenda, as you say, uh, Imogen, can be very effective in creating the mechanisms where communities and, and, and cities and, and countries can finance the, that resilience. And that financing is huge and it has to have private capital involved. So there is a sort of clear linkage between how do you set up the policies that can bring private capital to bear on the, on this climate resiliency and, and disaster resiliency question. There's, you know, there's a lot of work going on at that sort of UN multilateral type level to try to bring these um, mechanisms into force.
2: And I think would be a good example right the global resilience and climate investment network or whatever it's called gari those guys are doing a good job in sort of having the conversation bringing in insurance firms bringing in institutional asset owners talking about how do we really drive finance and met the right mechanisms into investing in resilience and they would argue that there hasn't been enough conversation the climate change conversation has focused too much on prevention and not enough on resilience and that needs to change.
1: That's an interesting point that we should that just bears repeating, which is, you know, a lot of our climate discussions on this podcast and others have been about what goes by the wonky word of mitigation, which is you know preventing or forestalling or slowing climate change. But we're now deep into and maybe this is what history will show these storms did, we're now deep into climate adaptation. I mean it is here and we are dealing with it. And and so that has always been given short shrift even you know even in the global climate agreement and you know developing countries certainly low-lying island countries have said you know hey it's not just about slowing carbon emissions it's about helping us deal with the real effects that are already coming
0: so what does this resiliency then look like from an investment opportunity lens well,
2: i think that's part of the real challenge here right the, the the opportunity at its most basic level is infrastructure right how do we build dams how do we build bridges or roads or sewage systems that are resilient against climate is those kind of building things the problem from a for-profit capital standpoint is the returns aren't high enough right so you know
0: resiliency doesn't pay
2: resiliency doesn't pay if you're an institutional investor it might it'll pay something but will it pay enough to make it worth the time of the kind of large asset owners that you need putting money into these large projects. And I think a lot of the conversations that are happening right now are kind of like, oh, how do we get investors to pay attention to this deal flow of resilience infrastructure opportunities? And the without recognizing, you know, how, how do we structure these things so they're not risky? It's not... That's not the problem. It's returns. If you can't get private equity-like returns, then there's an opportunity cost that most asset owners are not going to forego to do your infrastructure project.
1: I think that's an unfair characterization, Imogen, because I think there are lots of things that don't have private equity-type returns that are perfectly good investments and that fit into other parts of folks' portfolios. And so, for example, I mean, it goes all the way from these... um, uh, 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 coral reef uh, protection bonds that were issued in Mexico by Swiss Re, no, not, not bonds, actually, insurance policies. And basically, the hotels in Cancun and elsewhere, which were getting battered by storms, needed to be able to do reef restoration, which helps hold back the damage. And they got lower insurance rates um, as a function of that, and it helped pay for that work. Similarly, at a different sort of level, there's a new entity called My Strong Home that basically helps low income and other um, homeowners in places that are susceptible to hurricanes and tornadoes and things fortify their roofs and thus get lower insurance premiums. Makes, they say, you know, a better roof paid for by your insurance company. So the, the savings on the damage is that you can reap from having stronger and more resilient infrastructure and, and structures generally you know, can be monetized or financed by all these mechanisms like insurance, like bonds, like other things. And so it's not always a matter of just getting a high return on it. It's sometimes a matter of lowering the risk and assuring us some 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 way to have a, a steady yield.
2: And but that's my point, right? You are gonna get some capital to invest in these things, but you won't see the rates of capital flow that we need until the market figures out a way to increase that rate of return. There are always going to be the investors who are looking for different things. But just saying, oh hey, here's a low returning, low yield like yielding asset isn't that effective.
1: There are tax-free municipal bonds that are already paying for, you know, stormwater management systems that include, you know, more swales and and, 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 and more absorbent street surfaces and all sorts of things to prevent, you know, stormwater flooding and those things are just bread and butter you know kind of municipal you know bonds that have fit into big institutional portfolios for decades so the the mechanisms are not the hard part you know some in some cases there's some technology or or, or engineering design sort of questions to be worked out but those things are increasingly proven as well so i think that it's it's really a function of getting these projects to be better known, getting them to be, you know, underwritten and distributed by the big banks and others and, and put into the portfolios of the pension funds and everybody else who just wants these um, relatively safe, um, you know, you know, just as safe as any other municipal bond, put it that way. And, um, uh, and, and you're off to the races with, with billions of dollars for, for infrastructure improvements.
2: I mean, I agree with you with the Muni bond conversation. I think that green bonds around infrastructure and improvements are a very fertile investment opportunity. I think, yes, the, this is sort of a proven, tested thing that people have done. That's a very clear way to increase capital into specific projects. Um, there's also been a lot of talk about sort of innovations that the insurance industry could do to encourage these types of bond issuances. So I think that, that within sort of vanilla investing Yes, absolutely makes sense. When you're talking about pure infrastructure and resilience investing, that's where you're really talking more from an institutional portfolio about going into your alternatives allocation, and that's where I'm saying it's harder to free up capital.
1: Absolutely, one of the ones I like though in this new in this new category of of uh, sort of innovative financial structures that actually look quite like you know plain vanilla financial structures is these forest resilience bonds. I was driving through. Uh, Oregon this summer, and uh, I, I tell you, you know, it, there I think there's something like 17 major wildfires in Oregon. It was very, very smoky. They were closing airports because they couldn't land because of the smoke, and you know it was, um, you know, street, you know, roads were diverted and whatnot. And that's happening all over the West, and I think all over the the country. I mean, the the the, the places on fire. And this forest resilience bonds basically say those forest fires, particularly you know burning out of control with lots of years of under investment in forest management and things affect not only, you know, structures and the direct costs of fighting the forest fighting the fires, but, you know, watershed and whatnot. And so the hydro company, you know, the electric utilities getting hydropower and the and the water utilities want, wanting water have a big interest in better kind of watershed management and are able to thus pay and thus and finance through their mechanisms and their bonds um, better forest management. So lower forest fire fighting costs, better water, more hydropower and, and healthier forests. And and you've got a you know a real win 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 that pays for itself.
0: But how do, how just for that model itself for the forestry resiliency bonds, how does that actually work? What what are the what does the money actually go towards?
1: The money goes towards, you know, the kind of forestry management that has been uh, cut as, frankly, as budgets have, as forestry budgets, forest service budgets have gone towards firefighting. Firefighting used to be a small fraction of their annual budgets. It's now like more than half. And so they're busy fighting the fires. They can't spend any money, you know, tending the forests. And so the undergrowth grows up. The fires get hotter instead of just rolling through and being actually beneficial to the forest as it clears it out, now they're, you know, catastrophic and super hot and the trees die and you've got this devastated landscape. So a lot of, again, this is not like new science. People have known how to manage forests for a long time. It's just the budgets weren't there. So this is a way to finance that.
2: So I think this is like another great example of where sort of the impact ecosystem can play a role. Because the question then, one of the problems that sort of, as we all know, like social impact bonds have generally, and these forestry bonds are another good example, is they're so difficult to put together. You know, so they're always one-off. You have to have all these different parties involved. How can we, how can we speed that process up? And also, how can we, and in doing so, reduce the transaction costs, which is another huge issue that these type of more esoteric initiatives have. And then, how do we increase the urgency? Right? How do we, how do we tie all these things together and say, you know, the the storms that are happening now. What's happening in Africa, these forest fires, they're all part of the same thing and we need to take action now. Again, it seems like that's a place where sort of authority and the leadership that exists within the the impact community and the expertise could really play a role. Not just from an investing standpoint, but from a issue raising standpoint.
1: I really I I totally agree. I will say though about the complexity um part of this which is that you know a lot of things are complex when they're first introduced and as you do more and more of those deals the 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 components become clearer and and the the parties know sort of what role they play. So um that I think is starting to take care of itself as more of these deals get done and I think the market is getting more receptive to these kinds of deals as as i say they you know they can mitigate risk they can um, provide yield they they fit into these kind of wrappers i mean the green green bonds themselves are are a good example you know they've gone from you know next to nothing a decade ago to more than 100 billion uh, a year and, and and growing on and there's now you know other kinds of things that are that are like that the social impact bonds as you say do have high transaction costs and you know complicated evaluations and, you know, how do you get paid and, and whatnot. But, you know, there's, there's versions of that are becoming more kind of streamlined. And the basic notion there is just a very simple one, which is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so as the, as that becomes clear, then folks are finding ways to, 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 to fund prevention without necessarily having a social impact bond. So I think a lot of these concepts that were considered, you know, sort of innovative, you know, a, a few years ago are, are starting to be quickly go into the mainstream. And can you walk us through what catastrophe
0: insurance and cat bonds, what they, you know, how they play out and, and whether we see an increase in issuance of them and an in- increase in appetite for them? <laughs>
2: you just, like, the cat bond question is like the classic financial journalist story. like. Once, like, one time in their life, every financial journalist will hit, like, September and be like, you know what? Let's write a cat bond story. That'll be amazing. What are these crazy bonds of which you speak? Um, and then you never write about them again. Like, because they don't, I mean, they they are bonds of, that. they basically, you take a basket of insurance contracts and you invest in them. So... Typically, and and reinsurance, I believe, and so you know, your your basically your investment is, if you know, if there's a earthquake in Mexico, and the devastation hits a certain level that the insurance contracts the insurance contracts pay out a certain amount, then the bonds will cover that. Um, and for a long time, so they're a tool no for
0: uh, like almost a reinsurance mechanism. Yeah. Or, okay.
2: So it's just a way of offsetting that risk. And the idea from an investor standpoint is, oh, well, this is a diversifier, right? Because these are natural disasters. Um, and so, you know, you're not gonna have, you think you're not gonna have a earthquake and a hurricane happening at the same time, except we've just seen precisely that can happen. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the bond becomes a bad investment because it depends what the trigger point is. So you've seen, I mean, over the past decade, you've seen the cat bond market grow significantly but it's not it was not historically ever considered part of an impact or an esg investing conversation it was just you know here's a funky you know non non-cor- supposedly non-correlated investment that people can do
1: so how I'm do i'm so they- glad you took i'm so glad <laughs> you took that question <laughs> i didn't do it
2: i didn't did do a great job <laughs> of it because it was literally like 10 years ago that i wrote my cat bond story i wrote it for trader monthly a lifestyle publication for traders.
0: And what role do they play, do cat bonds play in this climate resiliency conversation? I mean, how like should should they should, do we need more cat bonds? Do we need more institutional investors? Well you're investing gonna have bond? more
2: cat bonds, right? Because as the risks in tr- increase, there is going to be, in theory, there's gonna be a bigger insurance market. Now what's actually interesting is that the the correlation between what is happening in terms of natural disaster disaster risk, and um, the the insurance industry is not as close as you would think. So you think that well, you know, the, the, the theory has always been well, the insurance is going to be a canary, the canary in the coal mine because these are the guys who take take the burden of the risk. But in actual fact, the horizon of the insurance industry is very short term because you renew contracts every year, and also, and and it's not necessarily true that just because the risks go up results in more insurance contracts. Because what happens is insurance premiums go up, people don't pay their insurance. So actually what you've seen really since the 80s is a huge increase in the the amount of uninsured losses that happen. And so, well, you know,
1: this, this is a good point, because the whole point of catastrophe bonds and, and, and all these mechanisms is to transfer risk generally from the public sector to private investors who are willing to, you know, take it on for, in return for some returns. And, you know, you just see the billions that that the federal government is going to spend on both Harvey and Irma are a form of sort of insurance. You know, the the government, you know, pays out when these disasters happen um, without having, you know, necessarily underwritten it or even expected it in the beginning. And they consider it some kind of emergency spending, even though these things come up on a very regular basis. So the notion is with these bonds that, you know, there's you can bring in other Forms of financing, and that then you. But the 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 key point is that you can then make it those bonds, those insurance policies, more appealing by doing the thing that will prevent the the catastrophe um, from having such high damages. So. Um, that's, that's what we need to get. Well, yeah, and that's different from
2: cap, cap bonds, right? That's the type of insurance bond. That's a change that needs to happen in the insurance industry. So the insurance industry says, Hey, we will offer you lower premiums or, and something if you do X, Y, Z. And so the industry becomes the thing that encourages either individuals or municipalities or whatever it is to basically engage in less risky behavior.
1: This ties it back to the your policy point, Imogen. You know, if the government's going to spend tens of billions of dollars on emergency relief, would it have spent a tenth of that or or, or a twentieth of that on on resiliency in the first place? Um, and how do you get the federal government to understand that same um, ounce of prevention lesson that that, that that that? And that's that my point.
2: That's, those are the types of conversations that need to happen, but because, you know, policymakers, because society isn't seeing this as a risk, basically. And even, by the way, I, mean, I was talking to the, someone, a large private equity manager the other day, and they were like, we don't process this risk. Like, w- our investment timeline is really three years. So, you know, if we're investing in a bunch of real estate in Puerto Rico, we don't necessarily think that, that's, that we're not factoring in climate risk, which is amazing if you think about it. So the the failure to see that this isn't a risk that's three, four, five, ten 10 years down the road, but a risk today is 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 why the capital markets and the insurance industry and all these other players aren't responding properly.
0: So that's uh, back to your original point, Imogen, that the need for the impact community such as it is to Uh, become more engaged in the political process uh, to realize that uh, there are investment opportunities uh, to respond to climate issues, but ultimately they'll need uh, some policy change as well.
2: Yeah, and industry changes, right? You need things like the insurance industry to to adapt. No pun intended.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. So That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thanks to both of you. Special thanks to our editor, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and sustainable future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, thanks for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.